All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for the spiritual life that we have in this church age. We're thankful that you have given us God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us and seals us and has gifted us. And Father, we're thankful that that we have this unique relationship to you based upon the role of God the Holy Spirit in this church age. Father, we pray that we might be mindful that we have been given such great assets and such great privileges that we might be reminded that the mission for us is to be a testimony verbally as well as in our lives, but a testimony to others around us and to continue to pursue spiritual growth. And, Father, we pray that we might remember that is the reason we are here and everything else is just secondary. Father, we pray that we might focus upon your word today, come to understand it more fully, that we might uh, understand many questions that we all have about the future. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. Last time I gave somewhat of a flyover of Matthew 24 and 25, which speaks of, uh, which is one sermon, which must be understood together, uh, one message of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the fifth discourse in Matthew. Uh, it is the only one that focuses on prophetic themes or eschatology. Eschatology is a term that comes from two Greek words, eschatos, meaning last, and logos meaning things or words or the study of something. So it is the study of the last days, the study of end times. And so this is Jesus' longest message about, uh, the, about prophetic events, about the end times. And it is, uh, second only in length to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's important whenever we look at any portion of Scripture that we always ask certain basic questions, and those are who is talking, to whom are they speaking, and are they speaking with reference to only that person, or are they speaking through that person to a broader audience? And that is important when we come to each of these discourses in Matthew And as we have seen in our study of Matthew, that the reason Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew is to uh, teach about the coming of the Messiah and his presentation and offer of the kingdom to Israel. That's the primary thing. Kingdom is the big idea. And so you have to understand what kingdom means, and what kingdom means from an Old Testament perspective is the messianic rule on the earth 
of the the son of David, the greater son of David, that he would rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule over Israel and rule over all the nations, and that this would be a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity uh, upon the earth as we have a perfect God-man ruler. When Jesus came at the first coming, he came to offer the kingdom, As I've said many, many times, he was preceded by John the Baptist, whose message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came, had the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent out his disciples to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not to the Gentiles, and their message was, you guessed it, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, that's going to be important because when we get into a little bit into this message, Jesus talks about the gospel of the kingdom being preached to all the world. The gospel of the kingdom, we will see, is not the gospel that we proclaim today. The gospel that we proclaim today is related to the description of 1 Corinthians 15, which focuses on the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, his substitutionary payment on the cross. That is the gospel we preach today. It is part of the gospel of the kingdom, but we're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom today. The gospel of the kingdom is defined by Matthew as be ready for the coming king and the establishment of the kingdom, that that is about to happen. Because Jesus was rejected, he ascended to heaven, the kingdom plan was put on hold. There's a pause button the Lord uh, God, the Father, hit, and only at the end of the tribulation, after God the Father, according to Daniel 7, the Ancient of Days, gives the kingdom to his son, Jesus takes the scroll, Revelation chapter 5, and begins to open the seals. Those are the judgments, and we'll have to review all of this. Those are the judgments that that enable him to open the, sea, the uh, scroll, which is the title deed to the earth, and then he will return and at that point establish his kingdom. So once the rapture occurs and the church is out of here, then we go back to the offer of the kingdom because that's what comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. So the emphasis then goes back to the gospel of the kingdom. Now, the gospel of the kingdom includes the gospel of justification. They're not too... Uh, opposite doctrines, uh, opposite gospels. It's that the gospel of the kingdom offers more than it deals with something in addition to the gospel of justification by by faith alone. So all of that sort of summarizes uh, a little bit of the framework of why Matthew has been written. Now we have to bring that to bear on our understanding of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 because Matthew is including uh, what he sees, uh, what his part of the answer to these questions uh, from the perspective of what he is talking about. He's addressing church-age believers, of course, probably in the uh, early 40s. I believe that Matthew was the first gospel that was written following the principle laid down by Paul's uh, trips to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that that in the early church, the church was primarily Jewish, and uh, Matthew is answering a critical question, which is, why didn't the kingdom come? What is going on here? And 
Uh, how does that relate to our mission today because the kingdom didn't come? That's why it ends with an, an emphasis on, on Jesus' mandate to the church, which is to go to the disciples, to go into all the world and um, make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. That is what deals with the inner Advent age. But as we'll see, there's very little in Matthew that talks about the inter-advent age. Now, what I mean by the inter-advent age is that age between the two advents, between the first coming and the second coming. And the first coming ended with the ascension of Christ to heaven. And so that period that started 10 days after his ascension on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended, the first advent of the Holy Spirit, that is the beginning of the church age. And it ends with the rapture of the church. So what's going on uh, in in between here uh, is not really addressed by Matthew. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through uh, this this particular chapter. As I indicated last time, this is a critical chapter, two chapters, to understand with relation to what happens in the tribulation period and that this is not addressing anything in the church age. That's a fundamental assumption. Uh, there are uh, there are a lot of disagreements among even dispensationalists, as I said last time. Uh, there are six different views on the first part of this, um, uh, first part of the message down through um, about verse 31. There's at least six different views that you will, and we'll talk about those a little more, not in a lot of detail. I'm putting together a chart that we'll have up on the website so that you can take a look at it. And then there's a second section in chapter 24, starting in verse 32. And from 32 down through the end of chapter 25, I think that is uh, a connected unit. Uh, There's a lot of disagreement. I've identified at least three different positions among uh, free grace, dispensational uh, futurists on that part. And I'm not even talking about the ah-mills and the preterists and the post-mills and all those other people. So that makes it really difficult for me as a pastor. Most of the time I can look at two or three different uh, resources and commentaries and everybody's in pretty much agreement. But when you look at people within our camp within our thing and you see all these different views and everybody has a lot of different arguments i have to you know really spend a tremendous amount of time because to be a faithful pastor and teacher to rightly divide the word you've got to process each argument outline the strengths and weaknesses of each person's argument compare and contrast, figure out what their backgrounds, what what is within their framework, their presuppositions to lead them in this direction to take this particular view, and who's, who's right and who's wrong. And that takes a lot of time. Now, I've gone through in a flyover pa- uh, manner when we've been in Revelation and other things to talk about Matthew 24 and 25, and I have have my views, but I haven't had the opportunity to truly drill down into the mass of minutiae that is in the text. Now, I don't want to go too deep uh, to drive you nuts, but um, 
it's important to handle some of this. And the reason is, if I, I found this to be true after 30 plus years in the ministry, that if I say something in a general way without documenting it, I will get five or six questions where people say, well, why did you say this and why did you say that and what about this? So it's better for me just to cover the minutia when I'm in the pulpit than to have to answer a lot of questions afterwards. So uh, some of you, it doesn't really matter what the details are. You just want somebody to tell you what it means, and that's fine. But others of you uh, have more uh, uh, more profound questions. So I'm titling this message, What is the Sign of Your Coming? That is the question that is asked in verse 3, and we won't get beyond that today because we have to look at some other uh, some other aspects of uh, what's going on at the, in terms of the context of this this uh, discourse. So I've highlighted seven questions that we need to address. The first is, what's the significance of the temple? Because that's the backdrop. Jesus has just announced that the temple will be destroyed. Why is that important? Second, we need to answer the question, what is the reason for this judgment that he has announced upon the nation? The third question that you may not think is important, but is one that is uh, addressed in, at all the time, and that is, how many questions are the disciples asking? Are they asking four, three, two, or possibly even one? How many questions are here? Uh, fourth is the focus of this um, this prophecy on events that are completely and totally in the future, are they on events that are mostly already fulfilled in the past, or are they being fulfilled as we go through uh, the church age? That first view is called futurism. The second view is called preterism, which means past. I'm not going to go into a lot on preterism. And present is something called historicism. But understanding those helps us to understand why you run into some different views along the way. Fifth question is, what did the disciples know? What did they already understand? What were they bringing to the table when Jesus starts to talk to them about future things? What's their frame of reference going to be uh, from the Old Testament? And sixth, the question is, you always hear people say this, uh, what are the signs of the times? So is this talking about signs singular or signs plural? That is an important question. Seventh question, which we probably won't get to this morning, and that is the differences between the second coming, the coming of Christ, and the rapture. Understanding that distinction is very important. So first question is, what is the significance of the temple? Now, when we have looked at this in the past, we saw that at the conclusion of Chapter 23, Jesus announces judgment on the religious leaders of Israel. In chapters 21 and 22, they are examining him, and they reject him as their Messiah. And in chapter 23, he announces his rejection 
of them as his people. He announces seven, and I said because of a textual issue, seven plus one woes against the religious leaders, against the Pharisees as as hypocrites, as religious leaders who have led the nation astray, and he announces a judgment that will come in Matthew 23:38, referring to the temple as the house of God. That's actually uh, one of the meanings of the Hebrew word hekel, which is the word for temple, translated temple in the Old Testament, the house of God. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. He is indicating that the temple will be destroyed. But as we have always seen, when God announces judgment, there is always grace. There is always grace with judgment. God doesn't just announce judgment and leave people hanging. You see, there's always a solution, a grace solution for deliverance in the midst of divine uh, divine judgment. Therefore, there is always hope no matter what happens, even when you're living through a time of national disaster because of divine discipline, there is always hope. And so the solution there is Matthew 23:39. Jesus said, uh, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The issue is whether or not you're going to accept, whether or not the Jewish people would accept Jesus as their Messiah. And so then we read in verse 1 of chapter 24, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And so the uh, action in the uh, Greek verbs here is really much more dynamic than the way it talks about. It's, it's, it's the action. You can picture this as a video. And we read, and when Jesus went out of the temple and he's walking away, he's made this announcement about the destruction and he leaves. And while he's going, the disciples are now looking around at these buildings with sort of their mouths hanging open. They can't believe uh, that he has announced this and that these uh, everything that they see is going to be destroyed. Uh, we'll look at the temple in just a minute, but uh, th- this temple was so magnificent that uh, one of the sayings, one of the rabbinical sayings at the time was, if you had never seen the temple in Jerusalem, you had never seen beauty. It was the eighth wonder of the ancient world. It was larger than any temple that was built to any god in any country anywhere in the uh, in the known world at that time. And they just couldn't imagine it, just as before... 2001, before the events of 9-11, none of us could quite imagine that something would completely take down uh, the Twin Towers in New York. It's something that, that they just could not fathom. And so his announcement of the destruction of the temple just leaves them with their mouth hanging open. So they're, they're coming up to him. They're sort of, he leaves and he's going in the direction of the Mount of Olives and they're running after, they're, they're standing there for a while looking at the temple, trying to process what he has said. And then they run, um, start running after him to get an answer. Here's an artist's depiction of what the temple looked like and that it was built out of it was built out of marble and marble construction on the temple itself. This is the inner temple here. This was the Naos and it was one of the walls was complete the southern wall was completely covered uh covered in gold. 
And as you're looking at it, you're looking at it from the south. You're looking north. These are the southern steps. And off to the right here, you see uh, these uh, the bridge and the arches over here over the Kidron Valley. And what Jesus is doing is they were going to come down these steps this way and then walk down here and then walk out and across the bottom of the Kidron Valley over to the area uh, the, the far side of the Mount of Olives was called the Mount of Olives because there were pecan trees there, right? No, they're olive trees. That's where you have the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a huge olive grove, but it was much larger at that time than what you see today. So they were just going over to the other side to sit specifically on the Mount of Olives because of what Jesus was going to teach. And so that's important for understanding the background and the framework. Now, what we see here in verse 1 is that it is two words, the words for temple and the words for buildings, because in, as Jesus is uh, leaving, his disciples uh, come up to him and show him the buildings of the temple. The word for buildings is the word oikotome, which which focuses on the buildings, not the exterior, not the uh, the external retaining walls the western wall that we have today that is known as the wailing wall is not was never part of the buildings of the temple that was a huge retaining wall built around the temple mount by um, by Herod the great in order to uh, support the weight of these uh, huge uh, buildings in this artist description here, we see uh, the temple here in the middle, and you can. This was on uh, Mount Moriah, where uh, where Abraham had gone to sacrifice Isaac, and you can see all the weight of all of these stones would have put a tremendous amount of pressure down onto the. Uh, top of Mount Moriah. And so Herod uh, built underneath this, when he constructed the temple, there's a series of arches that ran the length and the width of, of, the, of, the, of the platform to support the platform and to support the weight. And then he built this uh, retaining wall around it. Just a little bit about this. Um, We don't know much about what was going on on Mount Moriah from the time of Genesis 22 until the time when, uh, at the end of Samuel, when God uh, identifies the location where David will build the temple, and there is a um, plague that comes upon Israel, and what uh, David does to stop the plague is to offer sacrifice, and God indicates that the place of that is on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, and that is the site on Mount Moriah. So this had been a threshing floor for threshing the wheat and privately owned by Aruna, but it was purchased by David for the location of the temple. In 586, that first temple was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt starting with the return of the Jews in 536, but they had a lot of trouble pulling it all together, and it wasn't until 516 that the second temple was consecrated under Zerubbabel, who was the, was the governor at the time, and Joshua 
the high priest. That is known as the second temple. There are two periods to the second temple. We might break it down that way. One is the Zerubbabel temple, which we'll see pictured. There's a smaller version here to the left. But for our purposes, we have this is how the temple looked from approximately 142 to 63 when the Romans uh, took over. And it wasn't very large. It's not nearly as large as the expanse of the Herodian temple. You can see that Herod expanded it much further south. He expanded the east wall a little further out to the east, and he expanded the north wall then and also built a fortification for Roman soldiers uh, located on the uh, northwest corner. And so we can see the difference in scale between these two. Now, in order to complete this massive uh, remodeling project, uh, Herod had to work closely with the uh, priests because only they could build the temple. And uh, they were very suspicious of him uh, that he might want to destroy the temple. So actually he had to build everything before... Uh, they would allow him to tear anything down. So they had to make sure that the replacements were there before uh, any of the walls or anything else was was uh, taken down. Uh, he doubled the area of the temple from what it was before, and uh, he expanded that, and he increased the length of the Temple Mount from uh, north to south. That would be in this diagram from the upper left to the lower right. He expanded it um, so that the average length of the outer side was about 600 cubits or 900 feet. Originally, the Temple Mount was intended to be 1,600 feet wide by 900 feet broad and by nine stories high. I mean, this is the, the original plan for uh, for Herod, but it never that never quite uh, was completed. Uh, what he had to do in order to support the weight here was build a enormous foundation, and that's way down here. See, this area that you see below, or actually this wall here, the this has, a, you can see the vaults here at the lower level. Just above it, you see a solid wall, and that is where we have the, west, the location of today's uh, western wall or wailing wall. Now, there are foundation stones underneath that, and those of you who have gone to Israel with me, you know that we go through these what they call the western wall tunnels. And you can go down there, and they have a neat little uh, model that they can take apart and show you all the different stages of construction there on the temple. But then you walk down some steps, and when you get to the bottom, you are facing this particular stone. This stone is approximately 45 feet in length, and it is uh, 11 11 feet high, and it has been measured at 16 and a half feet deep. And the estimate is that it weighs approximately 625 tons. Think about that a little bit. The largest stone in the Great Pyramid, I believe, is about 15 tons. And so they had to move this in place. And this is, they suppose, of course, they don't know for sure because they can't get back under everything, but they suppose that this is the largest of the foundation stones. But there are many others that approached the size of this particular stone, and all of these were cut to a remarkable precision so that they fit perfectly 
on top of one another with no space in between, and they moved them uh, into into place uh, with equipment not that wasn't powered by gasoline or diesel engines or any of the modern uh, equipment that we have. So it's quite a remarkable, uh, quite a remarkable structure. And Herod's engineers designed all of this, and much of the work was carried out uh, by the uh, by the priests. So you can see why this was such an enormous thing that the uh, d- disciples are just hanging their mouths open, wondering how in the world could this ever happen? This is such a massive project. And so Jesus announced this even uh, with even this destruction with even more detail, saying that, do you not see all of these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. Now, he's referring to the buildings. He's not referring to the walls. But, of course, some of the walls, the upper walls, were uh, were destroyed. And I've shown you these pictures in the last couple of lessons where we see this pile of stones here that was left over. Now, all of this was uh, covered for most of the last 2,000 years, and it wasn't uncovered until the last 30 years. In fact, uh, you can't see it in this picture, but if you were to go just about 10 feet higher here in the upper right, you would see an outcropping of the base of what had been an arch, and that was discovered by an archaeologist in the mid-1800s, and so it's named for him. It's called Robinson's Arch, and I have another picture where you have some Arab children in the late 1800s or 1800s, 1800s playing underneath that arch, and it's only about five feet over their head. Uh, Randy Price told me that when he first went to Israel in 78, uh, that's how high it was. So all of this area that you're looking at here was has been excavated since about 1980. That was just all underground. That's why so much of it was that way. So they left these stones there as a reminder of the destruction of the destruction of the temple. Now, why is all this important? Why was all this important? Because the temple was the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. It's the dwelling place of God. Originally, you had the tabernacle, and the term tabernacle in the Hebrew is mishkan, and it is from the root verb shekan, or we also talk about the shekinah glory. The word shekinah comes from that root. It means to dwell. The temple is the dwelling place of God in the midst of his of his people. So that's why the temple was important. And so the temple signifies something, and the destruction of the temple signifies something. It signifies divine judgment. So that's the second thing we want to uh, look at in terms of understanding this passage, and that is the reason for the divine judgment on the nation. The reason for the divine judgment on the nation. Now, this had already happened once before in Israel's history. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, invaded Israel for the third time. He first invaded in 605, then he invaded in around 593, and now in 586 he invades, and this time he destroyed the temple. He uh, just about wiped out the city, and he took uh, numerous captives back to uh, back to Babylon. Uh, it was for 70 years. They returned in 536, and then they uh, the Jews rebuilt. In AD 66, the Roman government, uh, excuse me, in in um, 
I had the date a minute ago. Uh, 63 BC, Pompey conquered uh, the Levant area, and so uh, Israel, Judea, came under uh, under Roman authority and remained under Roman authority, even though there was there were many different revolts during the period that period of time. And this culminated in the Great Jewish Revolt, which occurred in A.D. 66. So this is some 33 years after the crucifixion of Christ. The the occasion was that the Roman governor confiscated uh, 17 talents of gold from the temple treasury, and in reaction, Jewish nationalists seized the temple, stopped the daily sacrifices, uh, that were being carried out in violation of the Torah. They were being sacrificed or were in tribute to the Roman emperor. And they, uh, this led to a four year revolt. Vespasian was the general at the time and he uh, conquered much of Judea and surrounded Jerusalem, but then Nero died and he was appointed Caesar. So he had to go back to Rome. So there was a pause in the there was a pause in the uh, assault, and it was during that time that all of the Christians uh, left, and that was one of the great causes for a hostility between Jews and Jewish Christians is because they were viewed as traitors because they wouldn't stay. And as we saw last time in Luke 21, they left because Jesus said, when you see these signs, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by an army, then you are to flee. So they fled because they knew that judgment was inevitable. A similar kind of thing had happened back in 586 and maybe earlier in 587. Uh, Jeremiah told the, the uh, leaders of the people came to Jeremiah and they said, we'll do whatever God says to do. God said, give up, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and you'll all live and you'll survive and you'll go to Babylon and everything will be great. and You'll have families and children and I'll protect you until you return to the land. And they said, oh, we won't do that. It's like a lot of people. We'll do whatever God says to do. Well, God says to do this. No, I'm not going to do that. And so they stayed there and they fought, and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands were killed uh, by the Babylonians. Uh, so this time the Christians said, the Christian Jews knew that what had happened before, they remembered what Jesus said, so they left. And they fled to an uh, area called Pella across the Jordan River, and that's where they they stayed during the uh, during the Jewish Jewish revolt. But the reason there's this judgment is outlined in the Old Testament, and that's part of the background to understand this: that God had established a covenant with Israel. We refer to it as the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant. And at the end of the covenant, there's a list of covenant blessings and judgments, and that would be true in many contracts or covenants of this kind. That there's an outline of what uh, the king will do for a vassal. In this case, the king would be God and Israel, the vassal nation. And then at the end of the document, there's a statement that if you're obedient, this is the extra things I'll do for you. If you're disobedient, then I'm going to do these horrible things to you. And so in the first uh, 13 verses of Leviticus 26, we have a list of the blessings. And the highest blessing is in Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. I will set my tabernacle, Mishkan, the dwelling place. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. This is God speaking. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. 
So if Israel's obedient, God promises that he will dwell with them and bless them. But then starting in verse 14, he starts to outline five cycles of judgment or discipline, and the ultimate one comes down in verses 27 to 33. And I'm just going to start reading in verse 27. He says, after all this, that's how he started each new cycle. After all this, if you do not obey obey me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. That's judgment. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. Each, each successive cycle is seven times harder than the one before. And then in verse uh, 29, he says, You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Because you're surrounded in a siege, you will not have any food. You will cannibalize your own children. And that is what happened. It happened in 586, and it happened in the time of the Jewish revolt. In verse 30, God says, I will destroy your high places. I'm going to destroy all because you created an abomination out of all the uh, worship places and created your own idolatrous worship places. God said, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you, as opposed to what we read before, that my soul shall not abhor you. My soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste. I will bring your sanctuaries to desolation, that would be the temple, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas, the end of the sacrifices. So this is announcing this judgment. It happened in 586, it's going to happen again in 70. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations. This is the fifth cycle of discipline. Not only will I destroy everything that you have in the land, I will take you out of the land. This is the place of where there would be blessing. And so uh, Jesus, functioning as an Old Testament prophet, has announced those seven woe judgments on Israel. They have their foundation back in the Torah, in the in the Mosaic Law. He has announced God's judgment against them, and so he's functioning like a mosaic, like a Mosaic prophet. And that is indeed what we would expect, because in Deuteronomy 18 where we have an outline of the roles, or how do you tell a true prophet from a false prophet? There's the prophecy that God is going to send another prophet like Moses. He's In Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. That's the order. You listen to him. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, This is God speaking to Moses. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, if they disobey him, if they're like the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, I will require it of them. That's that judgment that will come. And then he goes on to say in that passage, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So the death penalty was uh, for anyone who claimed to speak for God and didn't. And the way you would know it is verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if it doesn't come to 
if it does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken and the prophet has spoken presumptuously. So what happens in the uh, Olivet Discourse is that Jesus gives prophecy that has a near fulfillment. It's fulfilled 33 years later. So if that came true precisely as he predicted, then we know that what he says about the long-term prophecy, which is the lion's share of what's in uh, the, the Matthew Olivet Discourse, that that will certainly come to pass. So this is the significance of the temple and the significance of the judgment that Jesus is announcing. Now, the next thing, before we get to the third point, the disciples um, understand a couple of things that Jesus is doing here. First of all, they know that Jesus is more than a prophet. They know that he is this prophet that Moses has predicted that he was God, and so they knew that he knew the future and that he could accurately answer their questions about what would take place in the future, that this wasn't guesswork. He is the prophet like Moses. Second, uh, since he is the prophet like Moses, his statements about divine judgment were true and would certainly come to pass. And then for us, by way of application, this means that we can relax and trust God even when we're in the midst of judgment, just like the disciples could. They knew this judgment was coming, but they could relax and trust God because God is still in the control when that happens, and that we should understand that no matter what the crisis, look at their pattern, no matter what the crisis is, no matter what happens, whether it's personal, whether it's national, whatever it is, our job as believers is to fulfill the mission. And what's the mission? To be a testimony, to be a witness of the Lord to be a, a audible, verbal witness of the gospel, for we are to engage in that same mission that was given to the, dis- to the disciples to go into all the world, um, making disciples by baptizing and teaching. So this is the mission, and that we are not to be distracted by the crises that may occur or that does occur around us. We have to keep oriented to the mission of the presenting the gospel and also uh, personal uh, spiritual growth. So I think I'm going to end there. We only got through two of the seven questions. We'll come back to those next time. But these are important because it sets the stage so that we can understand what Jesus is talking about and what he's not talking about. Because what happens is so many people come along and say, what do they say? What are the signs of the times? Signs, is signs a plural word there? What does the text say? What's the sign? So what is the sign? It's one sign. What's the sign? There aren't signs of the time any more than the book of Revelation is the book of Revelations. You often hear people say that. It's sort of like fingernails on a chalkboard to me when I hear somebody say Revelations. It's singular. And sign is singular. There's one sign. What's what's the sign? But what we hear here in this, within the structure of what Jesus is teaching his disciples, is that there's a judgment coming, but you have a different mission. Because remember, the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' last words to the Jews. He's addressing a Jewish audience. It's the last word to the Jews, and it's going to be the next night that he's going to address the church and church-age doctrine, and we'll learn more about that 
next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we've had to uh, come together to begin to think about what is being taught here, what is being said here, uh, that we might be precise in our understanding, understanding judgment, that you do uh, interfere with man's plans. You do interject yourself into human history, and you do bring judgment upon people and upon nations for their disobedience to you, and especially Israel, uh, with whom you entered into a special uh, covenant or contract in the Old Testament. Father, we're reminded, though, that with judgment there's always grace, there's always a solution. As there was a solution at that time, there is a solution for the ultimate judgment of eternal condemnation, and that is the solution of the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening, anyone who is here today who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, that's the solution to the ultimate problem. Trusting in Jesus because he has already died on the cross for our sins, he has paid that penalty. And so the issue is that we are to believe in him. Uh, There is uh, condemnation, John 3.18 says, for those who have not believed because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so the issue is uh, trusting in Christ. And for those who have trusted in Christ, we're told in Romans 8, uh, one, that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Father, we pray that you would open the eyes and the thinking of those who've never trusted Christ to the glories of the gospel, the grace of the gospel, that it is just a free gift that they accept by faith in Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to them. And for each of us, we pray that you might remind us that no matter what may happen around us in terms of uh, national disasters or personal disasters, that the mission is always the same, and that is to be evangelists, to communicate the gospel to those around us, to anyone you bring in our periphery, and to continue to pursue spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.